The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, One of the topics that has been a source of very major interest, not just to the professional community, but also to the public, is simply the fact that we need the public involved in doing archaeology and the public's role in doing and funding and sustaining archaeology over the past 10 years has really been a major focus of our community's attention. And as a result of that... In this program, we've attempted to indicate and to identify the ways in which the public gets involved in archaeology and also the ways in which people who undertake archaeology have to get involved with the public. The reasons are multiple and very varied. For one thing, the allocations of funding and support for pure science research Uh, and for archaeology in particular, have gone down drastically. We don't expect those prospects to change anytime soon. And we also have to recognize as an archaeological community that the public are are the ones who absorb and consume our product. And the sooner we understand that and the more likely we are to approach the public as our general audience, the better off everybody is. Uh, In that connection, my guest today is Mr. Chris Webster, who is a cultural resource management archaeologist and has been since uh, 2005. He has worked extensively across the United States and holds a master's degree in archaeological resource management that also expands onto environmental law and archaeological technology. He is a specialist in the Great Basin, and he has also, and this is one of the more interesting elements that we're going to talk about, he has founded a company called Digital Technologies in Archaeological Consulting, also known as DigTech. I would add that these types of companies and these types of ventures that uh, expand our field into the domain of digital technology, that's the wave of the future, and that is certainly how a lot of archaeology is going to be platformed 
platformed, if you will, going forward. His firm is an environmental firm that specializes in the traditional responsibility of, of CRM firms, but also includes environmental and governmental compliance on all phases of archaeology. It is also a place where new mobile applications are being developed and deployed into the field in order to enhance the efficiency of archaeological techniques, both in terms of labor and cost. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Mr. Chris Webster. Chris, thank you for appearing. All right, thank you for having me. Let's begin by assessing and getting your perspective on digital archaeology, specifically how you got started into it and how you uh, developed your own way of doing things and founding your company, moving it along in that direction. Sure. Well, I've always been interested in technology in general, and when I first, uh, about a week after the first iPad came out, the first real viable tablet for field use, there's been other um, other tablet computers in the past, but nothing is uh, robust and, and sort of field ready as the iPad when that came out. And I got one about a week after they came out. And I saw the applicability to field work immediately. And um, I, I instantly started looking for existing applications that were out there that were coming out on the new iPad that would allow me to um, first and foremost, which is still the big problem, to just eliminate paper. And, um, you know, because coming from the Great Basin, um, they've changed their forms a little bit, but coming from the Great Basin and California archaeology, you know, site recording is very is very paper intensive. And um, not only is that wasteful on the environment, but it requires a lot of work on the back end once you're done recording because you've got all these paper forms that need to be converted to digital forms, which is basically just somebody sitting there typing it up. And then, you know, submit it to the state or whatever agency you're working with. So I wanted to eliminate that step, so I started looking into that right from the get-go. Um, and I spent I spent probably uh, two or three years just developing that on my own. And, and you know, I was a uh, field technician and crew chief and project manager in some cases, working for other companies across the United States, as we do. And I kept trying to insert my, my, my technological influence into the companies I worked in. And I was, I was meeting a surprising amount of resistance uh, across the all across the country for this. And we can go into the the many reasons why that might be. But long story short, um, I was I was laid off again because uh, we get laid off all the time in this field. And about three years ago this month, and said, "All right, if this is going to work, I'm just going to have to try and do it myself." And that's when I started Digital Technologies and Archaeological Consulting. And I didn't I didn't need another. I figured we didn't need another CRM firm in this country. We've got lots of them and actually not enough work to probably fill all of them. But I wanted a CRM firm that could not only try to change the way this business is done, but possibly help others, you know, bridge that gap as well and to, and to help them change the way they do archaeology. So um, the forms and things that I've developed are, are on existing software. It's not expensive. The most expensive part is the hardware. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's super easy to get into this. And uh, I think when people realize how easy it is to get into it, they start they start looking at it a little more seriously. But that's about how I got into this. So I guess my question is, uh, an item that you just brought up, is you met a fair amount of resistance. On what basis mm -hmm. did that resistance 
initiate? How, why why were why were pre- presumably progressive archaeologists who do applied work and are utilizing and always in search of methods that are more efficient? Why would they object? Well, I think it's it's my personal opinion that it, it was just too much of a change. Um, people. People like their field notebooks. They like their paper. Um, it's comforting. It's uh, you know, it's right there. You you can easily say, hey, this piece of paper is not gonna, uh, the battery's not gonna die on it. It's not gonna fly into a mine shaft like I've seen happen out here in the Gray Basin. Right. And you know, it's easy to say that those things aren't gonna happen because it's paper. But I feel like the um, the benefits of going paperless outweigh the cost of going paperless. Um, sure, all those things can happen to a tablet or whatever device you're, you're working on that's not paper. Um, but there's also things that, you know, tablets have that are, that are huge benefits. I mean, I've done, I, I've done, I'm just finishing up 45,000 acres of survey in Southern California purely on tablets, and we never had one tablet break. We never had a battery die in the field. Um, we had some challenges, sure, some technological challenges that we had to work through, but we worked through them, found solutions, and moved on. And it saved us a ton of time, saved the client a ton of money, which in this case is the taxpayer because it's a federal client. And, um, and we were able to, uh, to do things more efficiently. And not only that, but, you know, I've heard, I've heard uh, on, this, uh, on your show actually people talking about curation and things like that, which is another thing that this helps because everything that's collected in the field, from your field notes to the paper records to everything, has to be curated with the project eventually. Well, we don't have any of that curation. Our curation is a, is a CD or some other archived digital media, and, and that's it. Um, you know, if they want to print out the paper records that we've produced and the report, then they can curate that as well, but they don't need to. You know, they have, right. they have the, the digital copy, so not boxes and boxes and boxes of paper. So as far as resistance goes, like I said, I think it's just um, people not used to it, and, it, and it's very... It's a very different workflow. Uh, you don't you don't simply just have the exact copies of the paper forms sitting on your tablet. You can do that, but that's not very efficient because when we fill out site records in the field, you know, we kind of jump around as crew chiefs and field technicians. We jump around on the form. So I designed the forms that I have to to mimic top to bottom our workflow a little better. And when we export that those items, they export into the format the agency expects to see. So I see. you can you can have a, a field way that it looks, and then it exports in the way that you expect it to look. But there's no reason you need to have the office version in the field because it's just simply not efficient. So, so but getting back to this entire question about resistance, is it simply because <laughs> right. it's so new? And in a way, I suppose, if it's done properly, it sort of can threaten the infrastructure of many firms, especially when mm-hmm. you consider that there's a trend away from digging absolutely every piece of property in the world and more towards doing assessments that are based on literature reviews and probability models that suggest, well, you know, they're not likely for uh, archaeological sites to be in this part of the county, but maybe in the other part of the county because of the exposure, the vegetation maps, and the ability to access uh, potential sites. Is that... uh, is that something that you considered? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of things to consider. Um, you know, you know, when doing this, and and those are definitely some some major concerns. And you know, some of the other concerns I've heard too relate yeah. to people losing jobs. Um, yes, especially yes. out here in the yeah, <laughs> especially out here in the West, where 
you you know we do we do surface surveys. So when the surface is covered in snow, everybody's in the office for the winter, and um, and and a lot of times over the winter you end up typing up site records and doing all the stuff I'm talking about eliminating. Um, now I, I tend to I tend to think about it a little more. Uh, uh, in a little more hopeful way, that companies won't just decide to take this this cut in cost if they do it right and and simply underbid on projects, but you know still bid competitively, but talk to their client and say, listen, I'm going to save you you know X thousands of dollars. Can we just add a little bit in there? I'm already saving you this much money. Can we add a little bit in so we can create some posters or some publications for the next big regional conference that we're going to go to or the uh, you know the big national conference or something like that. And so over the winter, instead of typing up site records, you've got people who are um, not trained to be, uh, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, secretaries, just typing up site records. They're not doing any science. They're not doing anything they were trained to do. They're just typing. And instead, have them contribute to a paper or have them build a poster presentation or something like that. Um, or, heck, have your company podcast even and, and, and talk about some of the stuff you're doing within the confines of what your, your client lets you talk so what you're saying, Chris, is that there are basically new platforms for extending and broadcasting and informing the public as well as our clients on what we do and how we do it. So that opens up new windows. And uh, is that what you had in mind when you started to look at these new possibilities? Yes, absolutely. Um, part of part of my my theory that I've always worked with is that Half of our jobs as, as especially CRM archaeologists, cultural resource management archaeologists, is to do our job, is to do the archaeology, is to, to publish a final report. The other half of our job is to tell people about it. Because a lot of times, you know, we're working under federal funding on federal projects. You know, sometimes we're on private land, especially over on the East Coast. But a lot of times out here in the West, we're on public land. And it's it, to me, that's public knowledge and public archaeology to a point. Obviously, there are some confidentiality issues that we have to deal with, but there's still information that you can you can put out there. And podcasting and, and publishing and doing public outreach and even like lectures and things like that are all ways that we can do that and that we should do that. I think um, I think that should be a part of every CRM firm's proposal, quite honestly, but we've gotten so used to just bidding low to try to get the project and then there's there's no margin for being able to do that. And um, that's why you know, doing the digital archaeology and the collecting the data the way that I do and then doing all the podcasting, all this, the only cost to it is really time, um, which is pretty significant for some people, but uh, it, it's all relatively inexpensive to do, and it's something just about any CRM firm can do, really, if they have the will to do it. So that's, um, and, and honestly, the funny thing is these aren't even new technologies. I mean, podcasting has been around for 10-plus years, and it's only, as usual, archaeology is kind of a little late to the game <laughs> coming to this. And uh, some of the new technologies that, that we're talking about here for archaeology, um, and we just need to, to jump, on the, um, jump on the bandwagon, so to speak, and start using these things. And then one of the things I'm trying to do on top of that is to be proactive with some of the newer stuff coming out so we can, so we can try to be ahead of the game. So are you seeing any positive developments, and are you seeing more CRM firms moving in that direction? You know, I'm seeing a couple. Uh, I've been contacted by uh, probably two or three smaller firms that are just just barely being started by one or two people, and they want to get into podcasting. Um, there are some firms out there with some really good blogs that you can read about their work. Um, some firms in the Northeast, and and there's there's one I can think of up in Canada there, and and uh, a couple of them actually. And and there's some there's some really good firms doing some really good 
outreach with some of the stuff they're doing. They're typically the smaller firms, like I said, the, the bigger ones, the bigger environmental firms that are doing a lot of the work. They still have a somewhat of a zero tolerance policy to public outreach just because they're afraid that their clients are not going to want any information whatsoever out about their projects, so they don't they don't even uh, you know approach the subject. So that that needs to change really because um, I don't think clients are like that. I think clients, if you put the work you're doing on their land in a positive light, it only can look good for them. So um, the the zero tolerance policy is something that kind of has to go, but. Yeah, like I said, there are firms out there that are doing this. Almost nobody's podcasting. Um, my firm is, you know, we have the Archaeology Podcast Network, and we branch out of CRM. We've only got a couple shows focused on CRM, but there's other, we've got eight other shows that, that just, you know, are solely focused on public outreach and a variety of topics. So, um, and like I said, that's not very hard to do. It requires a little bit of a time commitment and a little bit of knowledge of, of editing or we can do it for you, and, and then you, you go from there. So it's, uh, it's definitely doable. And we will be back with our special guest, Chris Webster, and discuss uh, archaeology in the digital age right after these words. Please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. 
Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, my guest today is Chris Webster, who is an archaeologist uh, from the uh, U.S. West, and he has founded a company called Digital Technologies in Archaeological Consulting, LLC, which is uh, has an acronym of DigTech. Chris, uh, we've been talking about podcasts, we've been talking about public outreach, and how, uh, as you had emphasized, smaller companies are now starting to look at using these new platforms and these new communication venues for getting their messages out. Um, what? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how your firm is organized and how your scopes of work and how the types of things that you do in CRM have been changed by the methods that you described? Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, one of the ways, uh, one of the things that I do, one of the very simple things that I do is, you know, when we find projects and, and we put in uh, proposals for projects, uh, we, we typically have assumptions at the end of that, right? So um, I'll have, you know, you'll have assumptions that are typical that say uh, if there's any out-of-scope sort of things, we'll put in a change order. If there's any, you know, uh, surprise findings in the field, you know, we'll talk about that, things like that. But I also put in things like... Uh, you know, we're going to talk about this on our blog. We're possibly going to talk about this project on our podcast within the confines of the client's confidentiality um, agreement. Uh, you know, if we're working on a military base, for example, we're not going to talk about anything military-related. Um, we're not even right. going to get specific, mm-hmm. really. But we are going to talk about that stuff unless they tell us in writing that they don't want us to, and then we'll, of course, um, you know, uh, satisfy those wishes. I've never had anybody say that yet. Um, when I tell them what we're going to do, and, and, and I've even had clients say, um, you know, let me hear or or read your blog or hear your podcast episode before it goes out, so we can verify it. No problem. Here you go. Here's the copy. Take a look at it. Suggest any edits. You know, no big deal. So we're doing that at a very uh, at a very basic level. I've had a blog for about four years now, even before I started my company. I just rolled that in with the company, and then the podcast I started at about the same time. Um, so that was a a nice easy thing to sort of meld with Big Tech. And then on top of that, um, I'm getting into educational videos for archaeologists and beyond. Um, that is going to be a separate thing a little bit outside of DigTech for, um, for financial reasons because we're making it a nonprofit, but that's coming into the future. And then some of the other things that we do is I, you know, with my tablet program, like I said uh, at the beginning of the show, I'm using basically third-party software. I haven't written any $200,000 application that it takes to record sites. Recording archaeological sites is easy. Interpreting them is a little more difficult, but recording them is just simply data collection. So it doesn't need to be reinventing the wheel on this thing. And and I have no intention of of creating something that only my company is going to use to gain market advantage. I want I want this to be a, a you know a game changer and a, and a leveler across the field for for small and large firms to be able to use this sort of thing. So anybody that comes to me through my website um, can talk to me about tablets, and I'll. I'll construct the forms for them. Of course, we sell that as a service, but you know we don't we don't make nearly as much as they're going to save on it. And we'll construct the forms for them and the, the corresponding documents for the computer, and then uh, just advise them on what kind of tablets they should buy uh, based on their needs, and and then go from there. And then what kind of other accessories they buy. So that's that's another thing that DigTech does is um, you know we don't keep anything we don't keep anything to ourselves. I'm not. I think the market advantage that you would gain from having a, a super awesome, really expensive uh, tablet for field recording or tablet program for field recording, 
will soon be quickly destroyed by the, just the march of progress. I mean, it's going to be just a few years and everybody's going to be doing this. So I'm not concerned with um, gaining some sort of short-term advantage on this. It's just, it's just too short-term. You know, things are changing too quickly. Um, so a few of the other things we're getting to in the future um, is app development, though. We are developing not site recording applications, but other small applications that are useful for our region and then expanding into other regions. Um, and then hardware development. There's definitely some, some hardware things that can be put out there. So, um, But basically, I'm just into improving this field in any way that I can and then sharing, sharing those improvements with others so we, can, um, so we can all get back to what we got into this for, which is focusing on the archaeology and not on the paperwork. You're right, of course, and there's a lot to be said for that, but you know, there's a very widely held contention that digital or non-digital, what one of the uh, unfortunate outcomes of the computer age is now you have digital information and yet you still have the same paper floating around mm -hmm. because sometimes people just either feel comfortable with their paper or they really want to take a look at the uh, item physically uh, at mm -hmm. the same time that they're looking at something else, and it just becomes a logistical issue as to whether or not a tablet or a digital presentation is actually going to be advantageous archaeologically in terms of what you really want to look for, what you want to find, and what kind of information you want to consolidate. So I think those are concerns that one has to have. I am curious, however as to how you do your day-to-day -day work, uh, because now there are a lot of firms that use tablets um, as a means of recording their standard criteria and their standard variables for site collection and site surveying. You, I assume, have your own programs for that, correct? Yeah, I'm using a, a third-party program that's available that I've, it's customizable once you download it. So I've customized the forms that we use in the way that we use them on those tablets using that software. It's not software that I developed, but I developed the forms that I use on that software, if that, if that makes any sense. Now, is there any copywriting issues that you have to deal with when you start looking at things like that? No, um, I've actually been in contact with the developer. He knows uh, exactly what I'm doing. I've made suggestions to them, um, you know, major, some major changes that can be made to the application based on what we're doing because, you know, these, these software developers, they look at something. This is basically a database application that I'm using. Sure. And, uh, you know, his, his vision for this database application was so people could keep track of their wine collection or their book collection or something <laughs> like that. He yeah, had, of course. He had no idea. It would be used for archaeology. <laughs> so, right. Well, he probably um, didn't understand the process. No, exactly. So, so when I was looking at this, and I've got forms nested inside other forms and doing all these different things, he had, he had the functionality to do that, but he had no idea that it would be used in such a way. So interesting situations have come up over the last four or five years now that I've been using this program where I've contacted him and said, hey, this came up, uh, you know, maybe you should take a look at it because other people might have that problem. And then, you know, an, an update or two down the road, he makes the change and it comes out and it's, uh, and it's working fine. Um, and, you know, while I'm talking about this, it, this brings up another thing, another good reason to use third-party software for this reason and not develop your own app in-house. There are a lot of issues with that because, Software, anybody that owns an iPhone in particular knows that there's a new software update every couple months. Right. And, you know, there's a, there's a major software update every year, and then there's an uh, incremental software update every couple months. 
And if you're not on top of the back end of your application and and upgrading your software to meet the requirements of the new uh, the new operating system, it could easily crash. And it will take weeks to get that pushed through Apple and to get that to come out. So you go through a third-party developer, and they are that's their job. They they see the the incremental updates before they come out, so they have a chance to change their application, get the new ones right. submitted to the right. Apple Store. So it updates the second that the software change comes out, and that's a that's a major advantage to this day and age because things just change too rapidly. You know, we don't on tablets and on smartphones and things like that. It's not like computers where you can still find computers running Windows XP or even an earlier version than that. It just doesn't work that way. Things change too fast, so you have to keep your software updated. So that's why that's why I suggest using this this third party software. And there's other third party software out there that works too. Um, this is just the one that I've chosen to use. So. Um, and it's, it's versatile, it's, it's easy, it's uh, easy to read in the field, it's, um, it's heavily modifiable, which is nice, but the export always stays the same. I can always export to the California or Nevada forms that I typically use, or any other forms in the country, or, or whatever you want. Um, so it uh, makes it pretty nice to, to use it that way. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I'm just wondering how hard it will be, or would it be, to get all these companies to agree on a standard format and a standard venue, because a lot of this smacks of standardization, which I'm not against, mm-hmm. by the way. I think that if you want to compare sites or if you want to look at collections between areas, between locales and between regions and beyond, you have to have some kind of a control on the methodology so that you're not comparing apples to oranges. My question to you, though, is you're saying that who you have identified a way or a pathway to promote that type of standardization, because you could develop mm-hmm. a, a program that would be widely applicable or widely dispersible within the community, and then all of a sudden is, people are going to start recording their sites in the way that you have. And I see that to be a pretty big advantage. But my question to you is, are we close to that point yet? No, uh, I don't think so. Not even a little bit. I'd like to be. But the, the, the problem is, and, and for anybody that's worked across the country, you, you can go to you can go to different companies within the same state, and they'd have different the different forms to record on because they absolutely their own, yeah. yeah their own paper forms to to mesh with the state forms, and then they just digitize it in the office. So, um, and, and I've worked in you know sixteen, seventeen different states across the country, and the one thing you realize as an archaeologist is that archaeology sites, while they have different components, uh, different elements within them, are all the same. You know, they all have the same basic structure, you know, an archaeology site does. And, and you can record that on the same type of form. There might be some small idiosyncrasies with vegetation or, you know, some terminology and some things like that. But for the most part, you could standardize this form and have all the same information collected uh, for most sites and then just change your export. You say, okay, I collected all this here, but I'm exporting for Georgia or I'm exporting for Florida or Nevada right, or whatever. Right, right, right. And then do that. So standardized forms would be a good way to go with that, but that requires that requires one of two things. It requires either all the CRM firms in the country agreeing to use the same software and then to do that, because that could be outside of agency control. They could just agree to do that, or, or you provide them something that's cheap and easy for them to buy and easy for them to learn, and then they'll just use it. Or you mandate it from the top down. You, you can get the agencies to agree, hey, use this software, which I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's why I try to find 
uh, a simple and effective way where all they have to do is their initial investment is tablets. That's it. And then they can get these forms pretty cheaply and then start saving money and time pretty much immediately when they're, you know, right out of the gate. So, so do you think there will be a time when um, we can actually go out to the field and essentially have the field effort be an automated digital and digitized venture for doing archaeology. I mean, at some point, I would think that there's a possibility that the application of digital methodologies really goes pretty far in a pretty long way. Are you seeing any particular trends right now? You know, um, yes, I do, I do think that's a possibility. Um, it, you can automate a lot of the stuff when you go out into the field. Uh, for example, there's a lot of standard location information we put on these that we get off of, you know, topographic maps or you know, other information that's not, that really has little to do with what we're actually seeing on the site. Right. And a lot of that stuff is really just locational, right? It's like I'm standing in a particular location and all these tablets have GPSs inside of them. So it can, you know, when you start your site form, it can say, okay, I'm in this county, I'm on this uh, quad map, I'm on, you know, I'm in this area. And it can, it can just start gathering that sort of data while you're looking at the archaeology. And then all you're filling out is the basic site description. So, it can certainly be automated um, in that way. In fact, we're doing that for some of our stuff, and we're, we're developing some things that will make that a little bit easier right now. And um, I'm working with the, uh, the Center for Digital Archaeology in California, and they're developing some stuff that's going to change what I'm doing as well. So we're working in concert together to try to make this more, more standardized. So, uh, you know, because one of the other big problems with this is from a field technician standpoint, a field technician goes from one state to the next or even from one company to the next, and there's always a, a fairly steep learning curve for learning their procedures for basically doing the same thing. So you're right. learning a different way to do the same exact thing. So standardizing this will just shorten that learning curve and make people uh, better field archaeologists right out of the gate so they don't have to worry about screwing something up because they simply wrote it down wrong. It's just they're used to seeing the forms. It's relatively automated. They just have to record the archaeology and be done with it. Well, that's an interesting perspective, certainly, because what you're saying is that the information is there. It just really has to be recorded in a certain way. I would imagine you might get a little bit of resistance to that because people don't. Mm -hmm. People very rarely uh, want to disclose their uh, survey or testing mechanisms or, or protocols, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I would wonder how you would get out of that, but I guess I think I can answer my own question because as these digital trends uh, bombard us, I mean, uh, we're, we're going to be at the point where that's the only thing available, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's going well, to I think it's gonna go the I, way I of the plane um, table. I'm sorry? Exactly. No, you're right, yeah. and I think one of the things that's gonna that's gonna help push this along is is from what I've seen and the number of the sheer high number of people I've talked to in the past three or four years when I really started pushing this out there after I'd started developing my own system. The, the one thing you know, it's really difficult to change archaeologists' minds. They they get set in their ways. I mean, scientists in general they get set in their yes. ways. They like to do yes. a thing, and I think the one thing that's gonna push this over the edge and push it to change, just like when, um, you know, GPS came out and was, and was more accurate and was usable, you know, agencies started saying, okay, we have GPS requirements. Now you have to use this. We have, you have right, no choice. Right, right. But I think curation is going to be the thing that, that forces this forward. P curation facilities are going to stop collecting boxes and boxes and boxes of paperwork. 
And the minute they start doing that and they say, no, we're not going to curate five boxes of paperwork from all your field forms, you're going to have to just give us a CD. So people are either going to have to scan all that in on a copier and, and then give them the, the PDFs of the, of the copies or just simply collect their information digitally. And then they right. have the added advantage of easy curation, and then they can use those digital information in a database to, you know, start answering some bigger questions. And we will be back for our final segment with our uh, very unique guest, uh, Mr. Chris Webster of DigTech. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You've heard of good things coming in packages. Well, maybe there's a little more to that saying. But when you think about it, packaging is one of the most important things that can represent your business. Tune into Ditch the Box with host David Marinak. Each week, we'll discuss flexible packaging, marketing, sales, and how it all comes together in one container. Lower costs, increased margins. Listen to the show. It might just save you a ton. Ditch the Box is heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, this is Joe Schildenrein, and the program is Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest is Chris Webster, who is uh, the head of a company called DigTech, which is uh, in turn dedicated to digital applications in archaeology. And over the break, we were discussing the uh, the 
the very prominent and very promising influence that di- digital methods will afford archaeologists, and we sort of uh, sort of chuckle to ourselves, saying that in many cases our clients are well ahead of the curve, certainly in terms of using that kind of technology, and are doing it uh, in a way that sort of puts us sort of in the back end. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, uh, Chris, how, uh, how we, we really sort of need to play catch-up in order to get with it, if you will, in the digital world. How does that work in, in, in a very practical sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I work out here in Nevada primarily and, and, and a lot in California as well. And in Nevada in particular, we work with a lot of mining firms. And these firms, they're using highly sophisticated methods to not only extract minerals, but just to, just to work out there. Um, highly, highly sophisticated methods. But there's a lot of money in gold mining. There's not a lot of money in, uh, in archaeology. So, right. um, but, but we, we show up to these projects, and we've got clipboards, pencils, and, and compasses. And, you know, they're, they're using or dump trucks to, to haul stuff around and, and to do different things. So even from that standpoint, we show up a little bit behind the curve. And, and none of the stuff I'm proposing that people use is, is, is in the iPad. I mean, uh, you, see, you see grandmas in the park using iPads. It's not as novel course, as yeah. it once was e- even just four years ago or five years ago when it came out. Of course. So the space is, yeah, the space is changing super fast and, um, and our is already, we started behind with technology and we're continuing to be behind. And some people have disagreed with me and said, um, you know, well, we have ground-penetrating radar. Well, we have, you know, all these geophysical methods and these things we can do, but, you know, when you're until it gets to a certain phase of it, and then maybe you might see that stuff out there, but your typical survey projects are still pretty basic. You know, on a basic level, we hike in the desert um, out here in the West, and that's, and, and, and when we're hiking out there, though, it's nice to have it's nice to have just a tablet rather than all the other stuff with you. Um, and your, your client sees you as more professional and more, you know, the, I think they, if I'm currently working with the Navy and they see in our approach versus the approach that other people have come to their, um, to their area with. And they've seen what we've been able to do with the same kind of budget. And now they're talking about adopting our system or a similar system because they just, they just see the advantages of it. Um, and sometimes it takes a government agency with a very limited budget to see the advantages of it. But it's, um, uh, as, a, as another example uh, in, in how hard it is to teach archaeologists to learn this stuff, um, I hired an individual who's got 10 years of experience um, on one of these projects back in June, and he was carrying around with him in his backpack – this, and I didn't even know he was doing this, but he's carrying around this big, like, three-ring binder-type container that had all his references in it, all these different things that he carried with him, and then and his clipboard and all that stuff, and he just didn't buy that he wasn't going to need that. And it took him three or four weeks of working out there before he started leaving that at home because my iPads don't just – all my crew members have an iPad. They don't just have the forms on them. I've got an entire research library on the iPad that is easily searchable, and when we get to a, a historic site, for example, we can easily look up maker's marks on bottles and all kinds of stuff and say unequivocally, yes, this site right now, without waiting, this site dates to the 1920s to 1930s. Let's go ahead and record it. You know, there's no question. Let's, let's just do that. And that information is right at your fingertips on every single one of the tablets. And there's... So 
And, and if you're in an area where you have cell service, you can even look stuff up online while you're sitting there in the field and have information at your fingertips, like people have had for years now, just archaeology. So. Yeah, I, I think I think you make an excellent point. You know, it used to be that um, when we were in the field, uh, you collected your data. Uh, it was a big operation. You closed up the field season. You went to the lab. Uh, the analyses were done over the period of several months. And and now what you're saying, and and we've seen it certainly. We've seen it in, in even a relatively advanced stage here. Uh, you're seeing that there is no lag. There's no time lag. You mm-hmm. go from recovery to analysis, and like you say, you make a, a determination of site chronology uh, based on things like Maker's Mark right away. You just see it right away. It's just up there and exposed, mm-hmm. and uh, it's visible. So that's a really big achievement. I guess um, one of the problems that you brought up, which I think is very disturbing, is <clears throat> the fact that the uh, the larger companies are a little bit slower to adapt, which uh, is normally not something one would expect, especially in archaeology, where uh, working fast and working efficiently is really sort of the mantra. Why do you, why do uh-huh. you think that? It, why do you think that is? Well, I think I think for this particular circumstance, the larger companies company across all their offices at the same time and the biggest expense they're looking at so they need to not only buy tablets but they need to buy you need to have a robust case on your tablet if you're going to be um, in the field for long stretches of time sometimes an external battery is necessary uh, and then that's about it Um, but if uh, as you know 5 10 15 20 30 offices across the country needs to buy 40, 50, 60 tablets, that becomes a, a pretty high expense. And they need to be shown, and, and not only that, but training, the training is still there. You still need to teach people how to do the forms, how to customize them, how to export the data, you know, how to do all the little tips and tricks and stuff like that, like, like there is with anything. So there's the training and there's that. So it's a pretty high initial expense. But once the fact that on your typical project, you're going to make up that expense probably in your first 10-day session if you were 10 days or in your first couple of weeks of working out there. You're going to make that expense right up because sure. something you mentioned uh, leading up to this question about in the field rather than in the office, on a, on a phase one survey out here in the West where we're not digging shovel tests so we don't have some of the extra stuff, we're just basically collecting data that we walk across the landscape and we collect, there's no reason, and we're, we're actually showing and doing no reason why your initial draft report, where you usually have 60 to 90 days to finish that at the end of the fieldwork, there's no reason that can't be finished within a week of finishing the fieldwork because you're constantly uploading your data, your finished data, and to the servers, and they can be completing site records almost in real time and completing the report almost in real time with the data that you're collecting. So there's just going to be a little bit extra cleanup to do after the and can have their draft report and their notice to proceed within five, six days of finishing it because there's no extra work to do. So Yeah, that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I, I, I think you were yeah. right in principle. I'm not sure that we're at the point right now where we can eliminate some of these major stages, but we can certainly sure. accel- accelerate the timelines for them. And the other question, of course, is um, the people who are teaching these things 
are certainly not up to date with that kind of technology. So, uh, yeah. in a sense, it behooves the CRM community to uh, fan out a bit and and actually put some of their representatives on faculties so that the kids coming out of programs, be they undergraduates or graduates, uh, don't have that steep learning curve and Mm -hmm. uh, are growing up with this and saying, okay, you know, I can run this project tomorrow, just uh, give me some equipment and we're gone. And I think that's a very major change that has to has to happen. Are you seeing uh, how how quickly do you think it's going to take before a lot of these protocols will work their way into mainstream archaeological methodology? Well, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a little while. Um, it, one thing that might accelerate that, like I mentioned earlier, is is agencies or curation facilities mandating such a thing, which we'll see if that happens. But um, right. I think uh, I think as the technology gets cheaper, which is always a barrier to entry. Uh, I mean, you should be able to pick up a, an, an iPad for a pretty low price here in a few years, um, and and you know compared to the cost of not using one. And and also, I think the the as with a lot of things, the younger generation coming in that are using tablets while they're in school, and then they get to a firm and they're handed a clipboard and uh, and a pencil and a ream of paper. <laughs> They're probably like, yeah. oh, I think there's a better way to do this. <laughs> so, and there's no um, question. As, but, you know, you still feel that in some cases uh, you got to do some old-fashioned field recordation. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it depends what this challenge is, of course, and it depends on whether or not the information that you're recording is uh, old hat uh, or the types of mm-hmm. information that there are standard protocols. And, of course, I think you probably know this just as well as anybody, uh, especially if you work out in the West. They are very, very slow to change out there. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, one of the things that o- always uh, always uh, astounded me was the fact, and I'm sure they had reasons for this, but they resisted going from uh, black and white photographs to any other venue because they felt that um, uh, the, sh- the shelf life of a black and white photograph by far outstrips anything else in terms of visual visual recording. Of course, now in the days, in the age of digital recording, I don't think that is true. But all mm-hmm. I'm saying is that they're very res- resistant to these sorts of innovations because they have, or at least they feel that they have, uh, come up short with a lot of new methodologies so many times in the past that uh, let's stick to what's old and old-fashioned and at least reliable at a certain predictability rate. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And and I've I've practiced that in 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 my company here too. Uh, you know, I won't try to cram technology into a corner where it can't be. However, the difference between the way I'm thinking about this and the way maybe some of the um, uh, some of the veterans of archaeology out here are thinking of this is they see something typically, and I've, I've talked to people that have said this like straight up to me, um, they see something and they say, well, that didn't work, that tablet didn't work, that app didn't work, I'm just going to go back to my paper and do that because I know it's good. I think the other way. I said, I think, well, that approach didn't work, that particular app didn't work, or maybe that particular piece of technology didn't work, but there's got to be something that does. So let's find what that is test that, and then I write it up on my blog, and I talk about it on my podcast, and I, and I hopefully get that information out to other people, but, um, and I think if more of us did that, you know, we just experimented a little bit and said, 
does this work or does this not work? And then we shared our results with everybody else so everybody doesn't have to constantly reinvent the wheel on that one. Um, I get people talking to me uh, probably several times a week. They'll send me an email saying, hey, we were thinking about using tablets in the field and we're running a pilot program for, you know, using X and XYZ database app. And I'm like, I just direct them to the 20 posts I have on my blog that say exactly how they can do this as at least a starting point. They don't have to start from ground zero. They can at least start from a little higher than that and then modify for their own particular uses from there. Of course. So, yeah, right. You know. But the, uh, when, when, Apple first, uh, when Apple first came out with their, with their iPhone and their App Store, they had a slogan that you don't hear much anymore, but it was, uh, it was, is there an app for that? And honestly, that was the most genius thing they ever did because that really stuck with me, and that's the way that I think. I don't think, uh, like I was saying, this isn't working. I'm just going to revert back to, you know, to whatever we were doing before. I just say, no, this doesn't work, so let's go find something that does work. And one of the, one of the good prime examples of that is... Um, you know, uh, I've had people tell me that you still need to draw profiles of excavations and yeah, plan view maps right. and projectile points. You still need to draw all that on paper. But typically when we draw that stuff on paper, we'll go back in the office and we'll still digitize it. We'll still use Illustrator or something like that to go over the top of it in, in a lot of cases and continue to digitize that. So if it's anything that you can digi- you digitize back in the office and you don't leave in its paper format that you created in the field... You can do that in the field digitally. And I've got a couple apps that I use where actually you can take a photograph of a projectile point or, a, um, or a, any sort of artifact or, or landscape feature with your tablet, have that in the background, and stand right out there in the field and draw right over the top of it with, with incredible precision and then right. eliminate that photograph from behind it and export as normal. Then you've, 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 again, eliminated the digitizing step in the field and you've increased the um, likelihood that this is a more accurate drawing because you're essentially tracing now rather than just drawing fresh on paper. And we know how many archaeologists are not, uh, are not artists, but we're expected to be in some cases. That's true. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I just want to ask you where you see the trend right now in digital archaeology and what kind of developments are we, can we look forward to in the uh, short term? Well, I think I think I think all firms are going to be on tablets and recording here within probably two or three years. Um, I think if they're not, the firms that are on tablets are going to start pricing them out, just simply pricing them out of the out of the game. It's going to be um, it's going to not be cost effective to use paper. So that's the simplest part. On a more complex level, I think I think we're going to start to see um, some bigger questions answered by the data that's collected digitally because it's collected. Digitally, it can be put into a database and easily and instantly accessible by people looking for this. They don't have to go through decades-old site records and digitize that information, put it into a database. It's already going to be there. And then on top of that, I think um, some things like 3D visualization um, with, like, the Oculus um, headset that's coming out and things like that, if we collect our data in a way that can be projected into these sorts of things, you'll be able to literally visualize sites, which is another good tool for public outreach. Rather than have people, um, you know, we don't, we don't release site information because we're afraid people are going to go out and loot it and do whatever and destroy that site. Well, if we release our information onto our own, like, company websites and things like that in a way that somebody can just download that for their 3D visualization device um, because we took a, a photogrammetric sequence, you know, a sequence of photos around the site, then we've got the data, they don't need to know exactly where it's at, but they can walk around this, this Native American or, or historic site and explore it and satisfy their curiosity rather than going out into the field and actually destroying it. So 
Um, and then there's 3D printing and scanning. Um, I, I think the times of taking photographs of artifacts and drawing artifacts are going to be gone real soon when we can scan that in the field, save that data, and even export it immediately or bring it back to the office and just print one rather than actually remove right. it from the field. Um, so I think all that stuff is coming down the line quicker rather than, but quicker than we think. A very real difference in the way uh, future generations are going to be uh, doing archaeology going forward. Uh, I want to thank my very special guest, uh, Chris Webster, for opening up a new window for many professionals as well as the lay public on arche where archaeology is headed in the digital age. Thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate your participation. No problem. Thank you. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein signing off for Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We will talk to you again next week. Thank you and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.